Today we're in part two of our series that we're calling uh, An Unexpected Gift. And as I said last week, I'm going to say again this week, and spoiler alert, I'm going to say it again in the final week. I know that this is naive, okay? So criticize me if you will, but I don't know why everybody wouldn't want Christianity to be true. Why wouldn't you want the message or the, the story of Jesus to be true? You know, may, maybe not the version that you grew up with, maybe not what it's been made into in places, but the original version. When you track with Jesus uh, through the Gospels, and as you listen to him teach and you, you watch how he interacts with people, I don't know why everybody wouldn't want that to be true. Why they wouldn't even wish That Jesus perhaps came from God, a God who has invited you to interact with him and call him Father. The irresistible version, that's the version that I mean. That's that's why I don't understand why everyone doesn't want that to be true. And I know that there's a difference between I don't believe it's true and I don't want it to be true. And I can understand why you don't believe it's true. I really can. If I had seen what you'd seen, if I had heard what you've heard, if I'd read what you had read, if I had lived where you have lived in the way that you had been brought up, I would probably think the exact same way as you do. I can understand why you don't believe it's true. But I struggle to understand why you wouldn't want it to be true. In, in, the, in the first century, all kinds of different people, religious and non-religious, Jewish and non-Jewish, Jews and Gentiles, they were all attracted to Jesus. So consequently, if we get this right, they should be attracted to Christianity. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, and Jesus liked people who were nothing like him. And the reason people were attracted to Jesus was really a single word, the word that makes me want it to be true, but perhaps a word that was never part of the equation for you, and that word is grace. Undeserved, unearned, unearnable favor. Favor from God, not based on anything you did, and in fact, in spite of everything you've done. It's what you crave even if you didn't know what the word was. It's what you crave when you hurt someone that you love. It's what you crave when you hurt someone or you offend someone that you need. Because in that moment, you can't take back what you've done. You can't erase your past, but in that moment, you want them to treat you. You want them to accept you. You want them to, uh, to feel about you. You want them to see you in a way as if whatever you've done, well, as if it never even happened. And that somehow they could remember you and remember what you've done, but the relationship could be completely restored in spite of what you've done. Undeserved, unmerited, undeservable favor. And that's why, as I said last week, we're gonna really dig into this next week. So please, don't, don't miss part three of this. When correctly, apply, uh, when correctly applied, grace really does solve 
Just about everything. When it, when it comes to a relationship between a man and a woman, when it comes to a relationship between parents and kids, when it comes to uh, what, what's going on at work, when it comes to a broken friendship, really when it comes to any broken relationship, there's just something so mysterious and interesting about grace. And there's this sense when, when grace doesn't even exist until it is first experienced. Grace is just the name of a girl or a word until it's experienced. There's no emotion around it. There's, there's no story to tell until it's experienced. And the experience of grace requires a relationship. And when there is no relationship, there's no transfer. There's no back and forth. You can't experience grace without a relationship. And that's why this is such a big deal, especially right now, as we're trying to understand and to celebrate Christmas. This is why God had to show up. This is why he became one of us. Why We would never have known the grace of God without experiencing the presence of of God. It would have just been words. And that's why John, he writes the Gospel of John. We looked at it quickly last week. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John, who is the old man, and, and the people around him, uh, they tell him, John, we really need to get your story uh, down while you can still tell it. You were with Jesus basically the whole time, right? You were from the banks of the Jordan River. You were there when he got baptized. You, you, you watched him move and teach in different places. You were there when he was crucified. And John, you saw him after he was resurrected. Tell us, what was that like? What did you see? What did you hear? So when John begins to dictate his story, he begins like this. He kind of gives us the Christian creation account. In the beginning... Right? And you figure that the scribe who's taken down what he says, he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I know this one. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, and John says, no, not that beginning. Okay, same beginning, different words, right? And he says, in the beginning was the word. And instead of saying God, he reaches into uh, an idea that was very common in his world, in the Greek world. It's a Greek idea called the logos, the logos, the divine logos, the word. And that meant everything that was and everything that existed and everything that was important, all the information tied up in this one thing. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And I'm sure that there must have been a pause there too. And the scribe looks up and he goes, um, right, tell me more about that. How, how did God do that? How do you mean the word became flesh? I don't get that. And I think John just you know, puts his hands up a little bit and goes, easy. Yeah, I, I, I can't explain it all, okay? But after my time with Jesus, I'm convinced of this. Jesus was God in a body. And, and, and he came and he, and, he, and he dwelt with us. God with us, Emmanuel, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. We have seen this Jesus, and then we saw that he was full of grace and truth all the time, but the part that, we, that really stood out is that grace part. We're so unfamiliar with that. It was the grace part that was also so unsettling. For example, story one, story of a man in a tree. 
So one day, Jesus and his disciples are, are walking along, and they end up going through the city of Jericho. And Luke wrote this, right? And you remember Luke. Luke is the one who thoroughly investigated all of this stuff. So he interviewed countless eyewitnesses. That's why the Gospel of Luke, if you read it, has so many details, so many names, so many places, so many hard words to say, right? He includes all of this stuff so that you can go and fact check him. You can place this moment in time. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Not planning to stay, not planning to stop for a happy meal, no planning on anything except passing through. He was on his way somewhere else. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. And the reason that he was wealthy was because he was the chief tax collector. And as a chief tax collector, uh, he had either gone to Rome or he had approached and set up a meeting with the Roman governor and he had purchased the right to collect taxes. And as a chief tax collector, he basically had a pyramid scheme. He would then uh, hire other people, other tax gatherers, and then their job was to hire other tax gatherers. And then they tell two friends and they tell two friends and so on. And so on, and they were called tax farmers. And they would set up at different stations, like at the ports, uh, at bridges, at intersections, crossroads, all kinds of the high traffic areas. And while they were there, they would collect taxes, all kinds of different taxes as people wanted to pass through these spots. And it would all funnel up to Zacchaeus. That's why he was very, very Wealthy, because as long as Rome got their cut, they didn't really care about the service charges collected along the way. So Zacchaeus was hated because he collected taxes under Roman military enforcement. Everyone in the community knew him. Everyone in the community hated him. And he knew that everyone hated him. And Luke, apparently he had talked to uh, a number of the people who were there that day. Maybe he even talked to Zacchaeus. It says he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he wasn't looking to meet Jesus. He just wanted to see him. Odds of meeting him were slim at best, right? He didn't want to get too close, but like some of us, he was curious. I just, I just want to see what the guy looks like, Right? Besides, it didn't matter. Jesus was just passing through. Well, Luke gives us a little bit more. So we ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see, to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Okay, so picture this, right? Men climbing trees is awkward. Men climbing trees in what they wore back then is really <laughs> awkward. Awkward and undignified. But the Zed man, he wants to see Jesus. He's desperate. He really wants to see. And so when Jesus reached the spot, he looks up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Now, let's push pause again here for a second. This is not written in the text, okay? But let's imagine. Imagine the atmosphere around the situation. Everyone is watching Jesus. He's a big deal. And they see him talking to a man in a tree right who is that guy oh my gosh it's Zacchaeus Zacchaeus dude check it out he's in the tree and Jesus says come down here immediately and can't you just imagine 
that hush kind of falling around all those people who were right nearby, that intake of breath, the eyes looking on in anticipation, and they're thinking, I think that they're thinking, finally. Finally, someone's going to call this guy out. Finally, someone has the courage to confront that guy and set things straight. Maybe now he's actually going to get what he deserves, right? Come on, Jesus, let him have it, right? And so now everyone's watching. What an awkward moment for Zacchaeus, right? Everyone's watching. They're looking at Jesus, but Jesus says, look over there, and here's a guy now climbing down out of the tree. Awkward, uncomfortable, unforgettable. And he makes his way down. Everyone's watching. And Jesus shocks everybody. Everybody who was there, everybody who in the early years of the church read about this account by saying, I must stay at your house today. And the disciples groan. They go, oh my goodness, here he goes again. Can't we just pass through, right? Aren't you even paying attention to your own story, Jesus? It says we are passing through. And now you want to stop and have lunch? And all the people saw this. And they began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. And all of the, quote, non-sinners were upset at how this was going down, right? They say, first of all, we're good people. Second of all, we planned ahead. We came early. We got the spots on the parade route. Third, we are fans of this guy. We want what he's got. This guy, he's basically a traitor to our nation, an outcast from society. He's ripped all of us off, hasn't he? This sinner? Gets to meet with him? He gets a private meeting? We didn't even get to meet him. I barely even saw him. And Zacchaeus is getting to have a meal with him? So unsettling. So unexpected. Everything about this just seems wrong. And it was unsettling for Jesus' original audience. It was unsettling for those people who read about it for hundreds of years later. And it's even unsettling to you to the degree that you understand the context of the story. Because they, because we, we don't always understand the kingdom of God. God's economy, the way that God sees the world, the way that God sees you. The way that God sees us over and over and over in the form of parables, Jesus would try to explain This brand new ethic, the brand new way to see the world. So on one occasion, he attempts to explain this new value system, this upside-down kingdom that people can't figure out, this grace that people seem to be so unfamiliar with in the ancient world and in our world, too. In front of another crowd at a different time, he says, let me try and explain it to you, okay? So here is the story of a vineyard. For the kingdom of God is like. And that means he's about to tell a fictitious tale to make a true point. This is a parable. Anybody who followed Jesus knew that he's famous for parables. They know about Jesus and his parables. Here he goes again. They knew that in every parable there are two things to look for. There's the God figure and there's the you figure. Somewhere in the parable, you are going to find yourself, 
Somewhere in the parable, you were going to find God. So you kind of elbow the guy beside you and say, oh man, here he goes again, right? Another one of those parables. But there's something about the way he tells them. They're so intriguing. I really want to listen to what he says. And so Jesus tells us, to the best of my ability, let me try to explain to you what the kingdom of God is like. Let me try to paint you a picture. And the picture I'm painting is not so that you'll see what it looks like. It's an atmosphere. This is the atmosphere of the kingdom of God, the kingdom that you have been invited to enter into, to step into even now. This is not an after you die kind of kingdom only. It's a right now kind of a kingdom that I am inviting you to live in right now. It's hard to comprehend because it's not like the kingdoms that you're accustomed to. This is the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning, about 6 a.m., to hire workers for his vineyard. And so the, the wealthy landowner would go to the public square in town where the day laborers would all go gather, hoping to be chosen to have a day of work. And you usually hired everybody that you needed for the day all at once. The primary concern of the landowner was getting the work done, not the ones that did the work. The primary concern of the landowner was the work that was to get done, not the men who would do the work. And so, as they would expect, it says he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and then sent them to his vineyard. Okay, you're day laborers. Everybody knows what you get paid for a day's wages. It's a denarius. And so you and you and you and you, you off, go off to my vineyard, you go work. And then about three hours later, about nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he says, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. Don't worry, we'll figure it out at the end of the day, okay? And so they went. And now maybe you've heard this story before. Maybe you're even reading ahead right now. Maybe you've never heard it. But you might already know where this is going. And it's so unsettling. It's unsettling because it seems so unfair. One of the reasons that I believe that these are the actual words of Jesus and that they weren't just written decades later by the, by, uh, by the church, as sometimes is claimed, is because they're so brilliant. They hold together so well. Besides, anyone who could write like this would, would want to take credit for themselves. They wouldn't put these words in the mouth of Jesus. Um, Paul didn't write this way, and Peter didn't write this way. The, the early church fathers, they didn't write this way either. This is so extraordinarily unique and brilliant. The other reason that I think that this is uh, genuine is what we're going to hear that Jesus says, it isn't how you go about building a following, right? This isn't how you build a movement. It's the opposite of everything that everybody grew up with. It's the opposite of everybody's experience. It is the way that you introduce the upside-down kingdom of God. And this is just a little teaser for the series that we're going to begin in January, The Upside Down, where we track Jesus from 
baptism to resurrection and ascension. So this fictitious landowner of a fictitious vineyard sent these workers uh, and he continues this unconventional behavior every three hours. It says that he went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. Now, one of the brilliant things that Jesus does when he's telling stories and he's teaching is that he uses extremes. And so he takes things to the extreme all the time. So he would take it to an extreme so that everyone in the audience is sort of leaning in and trying to figure out where in the world is he going with this ridiculous story. Nobody would do that. Nobody behaves like that. And they're thinking to themselves, which one is God? Which one is me? Which one is God? Which one is me? So here comes the extreme. Jesus kicks it up one more notch. You know, bam, another notch kicked it up here. With one hour of working daylight left, he went back out. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing around here all day not doing anything? And Jesus knows the answer to this. And his audience at the time, they know the answer to this. And it's because no one has hired us, they said. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. So stop and think for a moment. Here's Jesus' setup. This is what Jesus wants the audience to ponder. He goes, oh man, what a mess this is going to be at the end of the day. How are you going to sort all this out? What happens when all these people come in grouped up expecting to get paid? Are you just going to sort of line them up? You go, 12-hour guys here, 6-hour guys, oh, sorry, 9-hour guys, 6-hour guys. How is this going to work? How are you going to keep it straight? And it says, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Start with the people who basically worked an hour, all right? Probably not even that long. By the time they got from the town square to the vineyard, a good chunk of their day their time would have already been used up, right? So let's start with the folks who worked uh, 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes. And then here's the twist. Here's the upside-down kingdom value system on display, the thing that messes us up. This is the introduction for Jesus to our world of what the kingdom of God is like. And here's Jesus saying loud and clear, this is what God is is like. And what he's about to unfold, if you don't know where this is going, it is so unsettling for some people. But it is so hopeful for others. And I'll be honest, the way that this story ends is unsettling for people like me. Perhaps Jesus was addressing people like me, the early birds, the got there firsts, uh, I, I'm the person who grew up trying to do it right, you know, for the most part, from the very beginning. And I'm far from perfect, but I've been on the bandwagon most of my life. I even went to Bible school, all right? In the prairies. That's the buckle of the Bible belt. That's where I was, right? The story goes on. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. 
They received what the original group, the first group, was promised. And everybody in line behind them goes wild with joy. Why? Because this could only mean one thing. We're not getting paid a denarius a day. We're going to get paid a denarius an hour. This is the best day ever. So when these came, who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them received a denarius. And what did they do when they received exactly what they had agreed to receive for working the number of hours that they had agreed to work? When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Just like the religious people outside of Matthew's house that we talked about last time. Just like the people in Jericho who got there early for the Jesus is coming through town parade. They didn't get to meet Jesus because he put his arm around Zacchaeus and started walking towards Zacchaeus' home. And so the laborers in the parable respond to the man who hired him. And those who were hired last only worked an hour, they said. And you made them equal to us. And they are not equal to us. Not by our standards. We spent more hours. It was we who bore the burden of the work and the heat of the day. We spent more energy. We spent more time. We spent more effort. They are not equal to us. But he answered one of them. I'm not being unfair to you, friend. But you can imagine how the audience that's listening to Jesus tell the story, you can imagine how they're feeling. They can fully identify with the 12-hour worker. Unfair? Of course it's unfair. By what standard is that fair? And the vineyard, are, the vineyard owner says, didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Just take your pay and go. And then Jesus, through the voice of the, uh, the words of the landowner, he gives us a big clue about the way of life that we're being invited into. He says, I want. Oh. So this is about what you want. I'm just so used to thinking about myself that the story always bends towards what I want. He says, I, I want to give the one who was hired last. And they go, give? Yeah, you're darn right it's a gift because they certainly didn't earn it, right? I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Well, hold on a second here, buddy. You didn't give us anything. We got out there early in the morning. We were hustling, right? We earned it. We worked for 12 hours of work. You didn't give us anything. We earned it right after you gave us the job. Oh, yeah, well, there's, there is that. So brilliant. Now, still in the parable, he says, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? And then this is the crowd silencing moment, right? This is the convicting part. This is the moment where if nobody knew who they were in the parable, they're just about to find out. In the next statement, Jesus illuminates the absurdity of my resistance. Jesus illuminates the absurdity of your resistance to grace. Either you're extending grace or you're 
willingness to receive it. And then in a single phrase, he puts a spotlight right on my hypocrisy when it comes to the subject and the nature of grace. Are you ready for this? Still in the parable. Or are you resentful because I am generous? Hold on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Resentful of generosity? Who would be resentful of generosity, right? How childish, how immature, how close-minded. I'm not resentful of your generosity. It's just that, well, I'm sure you can understand that I think because of what I've done, I think that I worked harder. I think that I deserve more. But you're not resentful of my generosity, are you? It's just brilliant. And in this moment, Jesus kind of outs all of us because we see in the 12-hour laborers, we see the world just like that, don't we? And in this parable and throughout many other parables throughout the ministry that Jesus invites you and Jesus invites me and Jesus invites all of us to see the world differently, to see people differently, to see our relationship to God differently because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is characterized by unsettled generosity. It makes us feel uncomfortable. And Jesus, through this parable, he's asking me, and Jesus, through this parable, he's asking you, can you handle that? Will you participate in that? Will you step into a system where the undeserving get exactly what they don't deserve? Would you be willing to extend to somebody else exactly what they don't deserve because my heavenly Father has extended to you exactly what you don't deserve? Will you participate? And of course, all the prodigal sons say, Hallelujah, yes! And all the prodigal daughters say, Hallelujah, yes! And all the prodigal husbands who blew up their families and blew up their marriages, God's never going to hear my prayers again, not after what I've done. They all say, Absolutely, yes. And all the prodigal wives who have ditched their responsibilities and ran off and they did something irresponsible. Then they woke up three or four years later and they come back and they're thinking, I'll never be able to put my family back together again. I can't imagine that God will ever hear my prayers ever again. They all say, absolutely, yes. But what about people like me? And if you're like me, what about people like you? The early to the parade people. What do we say? And Jesus pulls out of the parable. And he says to people like me, and he says maybe to people like you, look, when you begin to understand what my Father's kingdom is like, when you begin to understand the value system that I've introduced to this world, when you step into this and fully embrace it every single day of your life, you may feel like the last are actually first and the first are actually last. And you will be tempted to feel like it is unfair because of how you were raised to measure fair. And how do we measure fair? We compare to determine fair. 
So here, here's the takeaway for someone who's listening today, maybe somebody who's watching today. Grace doesn't compare. Grace doesn't compare because grace in Jesus is always married to truth. Remember, he came full of grace and truth. And the truth is that we have all fallen short of God's standard. And now the amazing thing is that that's why I can understand why you can't believe it's true. But surely there's something on the inside of you that thinks, but what if it were true? Because the system that Jesus leaves with us at the end of his ministry, the system that the Apostle Paul and, and Peter and others that uh, they come along behind Jesus will, will further explain and document for us, is fairer than fair. Because in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God, everybody is invited. Everybody. The people who showed up at six, the people who showed up at noon, the people who showed up at three, the people who showed up at five, everybody's invited. The no-betters and did-betters, maybe people more like me, the didn't-know-betters, and I I didn't know to do different, maybe that's some of you, and even the no-betters and did it anyway, people. I won't ask you to raise your hands if that's you. Why? Because we've all done that. I know it's right. I'm just not going to do it. I know it's not best for her, but I think that it's best for me right now, and so I'm going to do it anyway. All those people, everybody's invited. The people with baggage, the people with regret, the people with a past. Along with this, and this is the real kicker, okay? Along with the people who judge people with baggage, with regret, with a past. Everybody, everybody is invited to the kingdom of God. And everybody gets in through the same door. Jesus. Grace and truth personified. Jesus who called sin, sin, who called sinners, sinners, and then went and gave his life and died for all the sinners. Everybody comes through the same door, the same way, by placing their personal faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, trusting that what he did on our behalf made it right with God, regardless of how unright we have been. And regardless of how unsettling and how unexpected this might sound. So today, I want to give those who have never placed your trust in Jesus as your Savior a chance to do that. And I want to give those of you who may have done it as a child and then you kind of wandered away, but you want to come back. Maybe life's beat you up a little bit. I want to give you an opportunity this Christmas season to say, you know what? On this particular day, in this particular year, I renewed my faith in Christ. I'd like you to do it by simply reading out loud. And we're all going to do this in a minute, okay? Reading a prayer. These words encapsulate the meaning of the gospel. But these words aren't magic, okay? They're not special, 
They only matter if you mean them. They're just words that we say when we decide to place our faith in Christ. So I'm going to start by by reading it to you so you can hear it. Heavenly Father, I fall short every day. I need what I don't deserve to be forgiven of my sin and restored to you. I believe Jesus' death on my behalf accomplished both. I believe his death both brought me forgiveness and brings me redemption. And so today I place my faith in him as Savior and Lord. Today I'm going to place my weight. That's what it means to have faith, to place your weight on that object, all in, right? I'm going to place my weight on what he did on my behalf. I don't know where I follow, uh, fall on that continuum of, of really awful person and really good person, and it doesn't matter. Today, I'm going to come like everybody on the continuum and place all my faith, not on my good works and not on my prayers and not even on my promises. I'm placing all my faith on what Christ has done on my behalf. So I'd say, Heavenly Father, I fall short every day. I need what I don't deserve to be forgiven of my sin and restored to you. I believe Jesus' death on my behalf accomplished both, and I place my faith in him as my Savior and Lord. And so I'd invite all of us who are comfortable to pray this out loud. You may be like me. <laughs> you, you, you prayed this a long time ago, and you've uh, you pretty much stayed between the rails in that you, you never lost your faith. I'm going to ask you to pray it out loud as well for the comfort of those people around you. <coughs> and maybe today is the day that uh, some of you want to reset something that you said a long time ago and you've drifted from it. Perhaps today you want to pray it for the very first time, which means that this might be the best Christmas season that you have ever had. So, let's pray this together out loud. Are you ready? Everybody. Heavenly Father, I fall short every day. I need what I don't deserve to be forgiven of my sin and restored to you. I believe Jesus' death on my behalf accomplished both, and I place my faith in him as my Savior and Lord. Now, Heavenly Father, thank you for the way that 2,000 years have gone by and millions and millions of people have expressed that kind of childlike faith in your direction. And you changed their lives and you changed the trajectory of their lives and you changed the way that that they see people. You changed the way that they see themselves. So, Father, today, for the man or the woman or the teenager, the single adult, the university student, the senior adult who who sort of saw this for the first time or something just kind of lit up inside them for the very first time, I pray that you would give them eyes to see as never before and that you would confirm this decision and, and, and maybe even add some sort of tangible way during this season. Thank you for sending your son into the world. Thank you for sending him as a baby 
So thank you for allowing us to watch him through the gospels grow up and, and, and live life and, and face the stuff that we face, face all the stuff that we have had to face yet without sin so that he could give us life for our sins. Thank you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.